back and we got sports gumbo back that's right read option pod coming out a little bit late my apologies uh we had some scheduling conflicts last night and last week as well so we didn't have one a friday pod last week and we didn't end up having uh this one out to you first thing in the morning which we normally try to do nonetheless very excited gonna have a great pod today i'm flying solo um we were supposed to have on uh, a Big 12 guest to help kind of break down the Big 12. Again, some scheduling stuff happened. That ended up following through, uh, but we are going to do that. So for a little bit of news and notes before we get into sports, uh, Thursday or Thursday night, Friday, we will have our big, or sorry, our Pac-12 and ACC previews with Scotty and Vito. Uh, and then on Tuesday of next week, you will get our fantasy football pod. We may flip-flop those, but right now that is the plan. And then next Thursday uh, will hopefully be my sit-down with a good friend of the podcast, Josh Neighbors, uh, from the Locked On Big 12 podcast to do exactly as this podcast says, get locked on and locked in to the Big 12. So that's where we're at scheduling-wise. Very excited for this pod, however, because a bunch of stuff has kind of come through and some other stuff that has I've wanted to talk about, but with how busy we've been this summer, we just really haven't had an opportunity to. So to give you guys the quick rundown, uh, we're going to talk a little Kevin Durant. We're going to follow up on the extended Deshaun Watson, Watson suspension, which we did not get to talk about last week. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about college football conference realignment, but not in a way that we've kind of talked about it before. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with a little bit of golf talk. Uh, it's not going to be heavy live tour. Uh, instead, we have the FedEx Cup, which uh, is going on now as we speak. So first things first, Kevin Durant. Uh, the Kevin Durant saga from his trade request this summer has come to an end. This broke uh, pretty pretty recently, just about 50 minutes ago. Woj and uh, the Brooklyn Nets themselves sent out a tweet um, the statement from general manager Sean Marks, Steve Nash and I, together with Joe Sai and Claire Rusai, met with Kevin Durant and Rich Climate in Los Angeles yesterday. We've agreed to move forward with our partnership. We are focusing on basketball with one collective goal in mind, build a lasting franchise to bring a championship to Brooklyn. A whole lot to do about nothing, essentially. Um, this story when it broke that Kevin Durant wanted to trade that it was going to change it. It was very unnecessary in my eyes. Um, I get Kevin Durant probably wasn't stoked about a lot of the stuff. I get that as soon as the season ends, that's when you're kind of, you're, you're not feeling good. You're pissed off, especially getting swept out of the first round of the playoffs last year for the Nets was so underwhelming. They were the odds-on favorite to win the title. And that was with James Harden, with Kyrie Irving, and with Kevin Durant. And the first, you know, 30-ish games, or however many games it was, 20 games back in 2020 uh, and 2021, in that season that we saw out of that threesome, they were terrifying. 
we all sat here and went, holy shit, there's no way this team doesn't win 60 games and ends up being the one seed. Uh, James Harden has the hamstring injury that never really seemed like he fully came back from. And then, of course, the biggest and bigger aspect of it was the Kyrie Irving shit. You know, the the refusal to get a vaccine and the role that that played into it. And Kevin Durant was the guy who had to kind of bear the weight of the whole thing, right? Kevin Durant had to sit there and and be one of the best players in the NBA and carry that team to the playoffs. And ultimately they did, right? They still got to the playoffs, which is an achievement in and of itself, considering all the shit that they had to do. But the thing that has bothered me about this is I've defended Kevin Durant. I defended him when he wanted to leave Oklahoma City and go to the Warriors, right? Because, A, who wouldn't want to do that? If the goal is to win championships, who doesn't go, yeah, you know what? I would love to go play for that team. We're the ones who had a problem with it because none of us wanted to see a team that was already had won two out of three finals, had been to three straight finals, in the Golden State Warriors and damn near won the third, get arguably at the time the best player in the NBA and a guy who is a basketball chameleon, right? And not only is he a basketball chameleon, he's one of the best out there to do it. You can play him in any system. He can do anything you need him to, and he was unstoppable as a Golden State Warrior. So I never hated that decision. That decision made a lot of sense to me, actually. Uh, And on top of it, too, he got drafted to Seattle, spends one year in Seattle, and then goes and gets forced to go to Oklahoma City. He supposedly and reportedly loves Seattle. He's done multiple podcasts with Bill Simmons back a few years ago before he had his own podcast, before we were seeing active guys have their own podcasts. And he talks about it very openly, how much he loves Seattle and how difficult it was. In addition to that, he had to play with Russell Westbrook, and we this whole pod knows how I feel about Russell Westbrook. And even still, the two of them together, Russ was still so dynamic that he was one of the top 10 to 15 players in the NBA. And they could have had a run, but if you go back and look at the teams and everyone else, anywhere else he could have gone, and this is no exaggeration, the, the next best option other than Golden State at that time was going home to Washington. And playing because John Wall and Bradley Beal, Beal was just starting to come into his own. John Wall was, you know, perennial all-star. They had just had that amazing seven-game series against Boston and and almost beat them. I mean, John Wall was a really, really good player. So I had no issues, no quarrels with Kevin Durant going to Golden State. Other people did. I did not. And then when he wanted to leave, right, I understood that too. I did. Because he took so much shit from us, the fans, because we said he took the easy way out, right? They didn't win every single year Kevin Durant was there. Obviously, Clay Thompson tearing the ACL and KD tearing his Achilles in the finals played a huge part in that. But that's basketball. That happens That's sports. That happens to every great team. You know, when if Randy Moss had torn his ACL when he was with the Patriots, you know, I you can say that about any single team. A huge aspect of winning is being able to stay healthy. And so 
just because he went there doesn't guarantee championships. Like we all wanted to chalk it up and say, oh, well, super team, you know, up super team. They're going to win everything. That's not necessarily true. We saw the Miami Heat, right? LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh. It took them, what, they go two out of four in the finals with those three guys? And one of those years was against Kevin Durant. So I had no issue with him going. I also didn't have the same vitriol for him when, you know, he ultimately left. In addition to that, he needed a fresh start. He had just torn his Achilles. He listened to a stadium full of Toronto fans clap and applaud at the fact that he had just torn his Achilles. It was done. That whole season, it was done. The blow up with him and Draymond and all that, it was done. It needed to happen. So he moves on and he goes to Brooklyn. I get that too, right? Extremely wealthy owner, one of the richest men in the world in Josai. And the mistake he made, which a lot of people have made this mistake over the course of their, his career, was wanting to play with Kyrie Irving. And you know what? If there was no pandemic, if we hadn't seen that side of Kyrie, even if it was just the Kyrie from Boston, that team's amazing. But instead, the pandemic happens, and Kyrie gets exposed to be this kind of crazy, borderline psychopath, <laughs> you know, this, this martyr who wanted to cure the world and this anti-vaxxer, and, and it created a media shitstorm with a first-time head coach who Steve Nash is pretty universally liked amongst NBA circles. There's not a whole lot of anti-Steve Nash guys out there, but at the same time, people... We didn't know, right? We didn't know if Steve Nash was going to be good at this. And it was a whole lot for him to tag on, to, to, to tackle. And once KD does come back, and we see that there's actually, you know, he's, he's playing well. He's starting to slowly work his way back from the Achilles. They make the home run move because James Harden wants out. And again, those first 10, 15 games were terrifying. Until James Harden got hurt. Something that I still think he was working back from last year. Kyrie rolls his ankle in the second round against the Milwaukee Bucks. The Nets could have won that. Right? Easily. If Kyrie doesn't roll his ankle. But again, it goes back to the whole injury luck. So I'm going through this timeline for a specific reason. And it's that it's easy to hate on Kevin Durant. And a lot of people do. I personally haven't. However, this summer... This summer has changed a lot of people's perspective on him. Not just the, oh, going to Golden State, being the cupcake and all that shit, right? Not just, oh, he's now leaving Golden State uh, because he's he's too soft and everyone's criticizing him. Not just the, oh, he responds to everybody on Twitter and he's had the burners. All of that is justifiable in my eyes. The burner even, considering the amount of attention and shit that he's had to deal with and the amount of people who talk shit on him. All of that is justifiable in my eyes. And now we see him go back and forth with people on Twitter all the time, even though it's not always my favorite thing. He's had some amazing clapbacks, and good for him for speaking his mind and not doing it behind a burner anymore. But all of it was understandable. This, to me, is the one where there's something up with this guy. And looking back and, and reading some articles and listening to some of the podcasts I did, I really learned... And one thing doesn't, I mean, the guy had a really tough life before basketball. 
You know, we 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 always laugh at the meme, the you to real MVP meme from when he when he won it and he was talking to his mom. But there's a reason he said that. There was a reason he was crying. That was a really wholesome and special moment. It wasn't a funny moment. It's funny now because of the meme, but in the moment, that was a really special and emotional thing because it was a guy who had grinded his ass off, who was universally loved in the NBA, and people felt bad for because he was in Oklahoma City. And now in the 10 years almost since all that's happened. He's become a different guy, and he's really unhappy. And I never thought he was going to get traded. I never thought this would end in a Kevin Durant trade because it would have been so hard to actually do. And and Woj had this as part of the, the thread um, when he announced it, but he said, in the end, Kevin Durant and the Nets played out in a similar way to Kobe Bryant in the Lakers in 2007, which – that summer, Kobe requested a trade. He requested a trade, and then the rumor was he was going to end up trying to go to the Clippers. He wanted to stay in L.A., but he was going to go to the Clippers, who at that time were even more of a laughingstock than they are now. I will say this. It's not an easy thing that after you make a public trade request and everything that happened this past year and the amount of weight he had to carry and the burden and the social media stuff and everything he had to go through this year, I understand being frustrated, but it's like, you know, when we talk about NFL players, we just saw this with Tom Brady season ends. It's so easy to retire because your body feels like shit for 90% of the people, 95% of the people in that, in the league, you're not going to, you know, you're not walking off the field a champion. Your body's beaten up. You're sad. You're exhausted. And that's not a great mindset to try to make a big decision. And I don't think KD ever gave himself a chance to decompress after everything that happened and instead looked for people to blame and was so frustrated. And as dumb as this whole thing has been, I do understand it. But I will say, too, this this is the hardest one to justify. This is the hardest one to look at and be like, hey, you know what, KD, you – uh." I get where you're coming from. You know, I don't think he's fully justified in this. And I think it's going to hurt them. And I also wouldn't be surprised if come December, January, February, the trade deadline next year, that we end up seeing a potential Kevin Durant trade. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. I think they're going to give Kyrie one more chance, but Kyrie's on a one-year deal. It's going to be an expiring deal. So what ends up happening, I, I don't know. Um, KD's on the contract for four more years. And Kyrie also, I, I had that wrong, Kyrie did sign an extension. So they're going to have Kyrie there too. But they have to try to make him happy, but at the same time, they've done everything in their power. They brought in Steve Nash. They went out and got James Harden. They brought in DeAndre Jordan, and they traded away – Jonathan Allen, or not Jonathan Allen, um, Jared Allen, who would be a perfect piece for this team. And they traded him away to go to Cleveland in the three-team deal to go get James Harden like he was just an extra, you know, bag of potato chips. He's the washing machine that the Tropics trade for in semi-pro. And you can't 
you can't have asked for all of that and then sit there and be like, you know what? The front office screwed me because they did everything that you want. And so I can't defend KD after this. And the only thing that will ever change people's minds about him is if they go out and win a title this year. That's it. There's nothing else. And I like, like I said, I've liked KD. I love watching him play basketball, but the court of public opinion, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot to get him over the other side. And if Kyrie shows up and is the Kyrie basketball player that is so enamoring and dazzling and unbelievable, they have a chance. But are we going to see that version of Kyrie? I have a hard time seeing that. So good luck to the Nets and to Kevin Durant, but I think it's a long road. I think it's a long road back from what has been an absolutely tumultuous season. And uh, I think KD's legacy has been hurt. But ultimately, the only way you can change your legacy is by doing it yourself. As my dad always says, you lay in the bed, you make. So let's see what he does. So Deshaun Watson got his uh, adjusted longer punishment, which I think was expected. And we have dived in to all of why, right? We, we, we've gone through the court process. Uh, I tried to understand the best I can. Lord knows I'm not a lawyer. But the new sentence, 11 games, $5 million fine. Uh, considerably strong for NFL standards, um, whether or not that was the NFL no, you know, again, whether it was the public backlash thing and they felt like they need to do more, you know, it at that point it is what it is. The guy's suspended and likely, you know, the Browns aren't going to do much this season at all. However, my issue with Deshaun Watson doesn't come from the suspension. My issue with this whole situation isn't about too small of a fine, which I think the fine should have been more, and I think the suspension should have been more. I think I've been pretty clear on that on this podcast. However, the thing that's really set me off is Deshaun Watson himself. I read a fantastic article on Anscape.com, uh, which you can find uh, on ESPN, uh, talking about accountability versus innocence. Because we've heard a lot of different perspectives from, or I should say, we've we've well, we've seen Deshaun Watson talk out of both sides of his mouth. In the statement that he released last Thursday, Deshaun said, "I apologize once again for any pain this situation has caused. I take accountability for the decisions I made." All right, great. You take accountability. You're accepting the suspension. All of that. And then he met with reporters on Thursday after the statement came out and after the suspension came out. And then he said, I've always stood on my innocence and always said I've never assaulted anyone or disrespected anyone. I'm going to continue to stand on my innocence. Those two are mutually exclusive, man. You can't stand on your innocence and also accept all responsibility and accountability for the decisions that you made. 
That's not how it works. There, there, there's nothing out there that says that that's how that works. Like, it, they're such polar opposites. And what's crazy is one is a crafted statement that was sent out that had lawyers, that had PR people all looking over it from a multi-billion dollar organization in the Cleveland Browns. And the other one is Deshaun Watson being asked in front of a bunch of reporters. There's truth there. Okay? And it's not from the first one crafted by the PR people. Deshaun Watson is a scumbag. And I think we've known this for a while. But this has been going on since March of 2021. And he's continually stood on his innocence. But how can you stand on your innocence and accept a punishment? Honestly, I don't know what we do at this point. Because in my eyes, Deshaun Watson shouldn't be allowed to play in the NFL. If you're a predator, you do not deserve to play in the NFL. If there's enough information out there that, A, you get suspended not only once but twice, and you're getting fined millions of dollars, how on earth can you sit there and say, hey, you know what? I'm innocent. Especially because he acknowledges that he's taking responsibility for his actions. So why, again, is Deshaun Watson allowed to play in the NFL? Why are we just accepting this? Because he plays quarterback? Because he's really talented? Because there was no legal issue attached to this? There's no legal action going against him. But that's only because two grand juries in Texas declined to indict him earlier this year. This has been happening since March of 2021 when this story broke, and yet he never got his story straight. He's still trying to play both sides of it. If he was a backup guard, like the guy who assaulted uh, the offensive lineman from Seattle last offseason, that dude never played in the NFL again. That dude never stepped. I'm pretty sure he's in prison. What's interesting, too, is Deshaun Watson had the sterling reputation at Clemson. Like, he was one of the most well-liked across the board, high character. I mean, I, I know people who know him personally. I, I know people who have said nothing but great things. And so is that why? I don't think so. I think it's because he's a damn good quarterback who's already missed 16 games. Now he's going to miss an additional 11 games, 27 games of his career. And that's not enough. I'm sorry, it's not enough. And the whole thing is sickening. And what sucks the most is even the, the Mina Kimes of the world who, who can talk about it so much more eloquently than I can, and from the perspective of a female, which I can't do either, all of us in 14 days, 16 days, however many days, on September 11th, when the first NFL games kick off on that first Sunday, we are all going to sit there and support the league 
that is allowing this to happen. And we're going to do so with vin and vigor. And yet this guy can sit here and lie to our face and say he's innocent, but also say he accepts responsibility. Two things that are mutually exclusive. And he's going to end up getting so much of that $230 million guaranteed that the Cleveland Browns just signed him to. It sucks. The whole thing sucks. I'm for second chances. But 24 plaintiffs in a civil lawsuit, 24. Deshaun Watson was feeding us shit. He was lying to us when he said, I'm standing on my innocence. Legally, I have to say I'm accepting this. I'm not going to fight the suspension because I know what I did. This is all horseshit. If he was standing on his innocence, he wouldn't have accepted the suspension. Would have been much more like Deflategate, honestly, where Tom Brady pushed it to the most extreme level he possibly could before finally accepting it. And as we've learned over the last few years, and as more articles and, and books have come out, Seth Wickersham had a book about the Patriots. We learned, yeah, Deflategate, it was kind of bullshit, and Tom Brady probably shouldn't have been suspended. And that was a man who pushed his innocence as far as it could go, and Deshaun Watson sure as shit hasn't done that. He's trying to save face to the best of his ability. And there are going to be people who buy it, and there's going to be fans in Cleveland who, who see Deshaun Watson wearing their jersey and are going to love every second of it. He just wants to come back and, and, and play football. And on one hand, as a human being, if you go through a lot of shit, I understand that. But from my perspective, he shouldn't be allowed to play football. It just, it seems like he doesn't get it. Either willfully ignorant or unintentionally ignorant. But either way, Deshaun Watson doesn't fucking get it. And the, the victims of Deshaun Watson who are going to have to watch on Sundays or see things or have had their whole lives turned upside down by this. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to the NFL fans who are out there who are really hurt by this. And yet, so many people are going to come in and watch their teams all the time. And I guess on one hand, sure, I applaud the NFL for actually serving up a somewhat severe penalty. What I don't agree with and what I have a really hard time swallowing is Deshaun Watson in any way, shape, or form. And I will not, not change my opinion on that. People deserve second chances, sure. It's a privilege to play in the NFL. It's a privilege to make $230 million guaranteed. And I think what we've learned is that privilege in the NFL comes with being talented, which we've known. But it still sucks to say out loud.
So we've spent a lot of time, honestly, over the last year, going back to Oklahoma and Texas, uh, talking about conference realignment in college football, right? And the different things that can mean. And, you know, this has happened to me over the last couple of years as college football season has, has rolled around. I've had this kind of increased romanticism about college football. And I know that 10 years from now, when college football looks completely different, even five years from now, three years from now, we have no idea what next year or what next month is even going to bring. I know that the end result is going to be amazing matchups and it's going to be amazing, uh, you know, just view, as fans, especially someone like myself who grew up and not a huge college football fan, I'm going to love it. I'm going to love watching Oregon play Ohio State as a regular season game all the time. I'm going to love watching, you know, Clemson eventually end up playing or whoever's Davos, Davos coaching, you know, one of these top two schools or, or top matchups on a regular basis. I think we all collectively as college football fans, we're not going to care about it, but I've been talking to a lot of people recently about the group of five and it's no surprise to the people who, who listen to this show I have a vested interest in the group of five now. JMU being in the Sun Belt was a huge deal as a sports fan, as an alumni of that school, as someone who genuinely, heart to God, I'm so excited to watch JMU play Louisville in you know November. Like that to me is going to be such an awesome thing. As and from the perspective of us, of us not being an FCS school anymore. And how I've described it to people, and it's going to be tough via podcast, but using my hands at least, we've had the top tier in college football, tier one is the power five. Tier two has been the group of five. Tier three has been the FCS. Tier tier four, tier five, you know, D2, D3, and it works down from there. Well, the second college football expands, right? Uh, the college football playoff expands, and realistically, we'll also have two mega conferences at the top, we're now going to add a sixth tier to that, which will be the new one tier, right? So the new one tier is going to be your Alabama, your SEC Big Tens, right? Like if they end up being the two super conferences that form this league, and there's already been talks uh, that the NCAA has looked into them organizing as a separate entity, not under the umbrella of the NCAA. So assuming that that is ultimately where we end up going, which still to this point, especially knowing how volatile college football can be, is an assumption, but it's the most likely outcome as we stand right now, we'll have a top tier that will be amazing. It'll be 32, two 16-team conferences of 32 teams. It's going to be amazing matchups. It's going to be awesome college football for everybody. And then we're going to have a new second tier. And that new second tier is going to be all of the power five teams that didn't make the cut for the two super conferences. That's going to be the new group of five, right? That's going to be the new, uh, you know, call it group of three conferences or semi power three conferences, right? They're going to be that second tier and you're going to have your Washington States and you're going to have your, uh, you know, your, your Washington States are going to have your, uh, maybe a UVA, maybe a Louisville, right? You're gonna have uh, you're gonna have these schools that don't make the cut 
that aren't Big Ten or SEC grandfathered in, Oklahoma State may not make the cut, right? We're going to have the TCUs of the world. That That's going to become that second tier, but are still really, really good elite and very valuable properties. And they're going to have their own TV networks and their own TV contracts. And they're probably going to end up having even potentially their own national championship, especially if that those top two conferences break off and to a separate entity run outside of the NCAA. And then you're going to get to tier three, which is where the group of five is going to live. And as an FCS fan, it makes me sad because the FCS will now be tier four, which is the same distance from the top as they just were, right? Uh, or is actually going to be one below from where they just were. But JMU making the jump, right? We think, oh, now we're in the group of five. Now we're only one off. Now maybe one day we could be a Cincinnati and go undefeated and beat some power five schools and make our way in. Even if it's a long shot and completely unrealistic, that hope is what makes college football so special. The traditions and the hope and all of that stuff, the stuff that I was just talking about getting, you know, very romantic about all of that is going to kind of go by the wayside if the group of five ends up being the new FCS. And there's a lot of other things out here besides just matchups, besides just opportunity and potential that affect this. Main one being financially, right? If you look at how many schools out of the out of all of the group of five schools that are in uh, college football right now, there are only two schools that are not playing in the group of five that are not playing a power five team this year. There are 60 teams now in the group of five leagues, right? The American conference here say the Mac mountain West and Sunbelt. And of all those, the only two that aren't playing a power five program are FIU and North Texas. Everyone else is going to be playing a power five school, right? 26 of the 60, almost half are going to be playing multiple power five schools. And there are 85 scheduled Power 5 versus Group of 5 games this season in total. Five more than last year. And the biggest reason why losing this hurts, which in my imagination, as fans of the smaller school, you value the opportunity to be like, hey, my team is playing Florida this year. Let's let's take a trip to Gainesville. Let's, let's watch Marshall go to Florida and play in Gainesville, right? Let's watch Houston go somewhere else and play in this really cool event. Even if they get blown out by 30, it's still a really cool opportunity as a fan. And who knows, right? You have that hope that maybe today, maybe this will be the day that we are the new app state, that we are the, the ones that pull off the crazy upset that no one thought was possible. But the financial aspect of this is huge because Louisville is paying a lot of money to JMU right now for them to play this year. It's not quite as much as what they would pay FCS teams, which is usually over a million dollars but it's still going to be a large chunk of change. And for these schools who are trying to become competitive, who are trying to build their programs, essentially becoming the new FCS is going to hurt that level of college football. Now I know at the end of the day, most casual college football fans are not going to care about it. And if you're a fan of a power five school, who cares, right? It's just a group of five. I've made this analogy a million times. College football is so uniquely special compared to any other sports product that we have in the United States. And such a sports-obsessed culture, 
college football is its own thing. It's so weird and different. And it re- relates a lot to the way that soccer works in Europe, minus the relegation system, right? In Europe, you have the Premier League, you have La Liga, you have Bundesliga, you have the French League, you have the Portugal League, right? And then at the end of it, they have the Champions League, where the top three teams from each of those leagues play in this awesome tournament, and then you have a Champions League winner. Sounds pretty familiar, right? We have the Big Ten, the Big 12, the SEC, the ACC, the Pac-12, And if we expanded the playoff and we had a 12-team playoff and then all those schools would go into a tournament-style thing and you'd have one national champion at the end. But winning your conference championship, even if you end up not making college football playoff, like Penn State a couple of years ago, with two two losses but still won the Pac-12, we've seen it from Utah, we saw it from Ohio State in the past, When you win and you still don't have a chance, that conference championship still matters a ton. And my fear is that the group of five is going to become relegated, not through the normal relegation system like you would see in soccer, but instead the entire division of football will become its own entity. Group of five will have its own championship. And again, for people who cover college football, I hear it all the time. It's like, oh, well, look how great the FCS model is, right? You know, that'd be great if the group of five had its own championship. And look, objectively, yes, that that would be cool, especially if it was a playoff-style format. And I loved the FCS model. However, it puts a school like JMU or, or Marshall and all these schools that just made the jump up, Sam Houston State, all these schools that just made the jump up to the group of five, it puts them exactly where they were before maybe making a little bit more money. But again, the fact that the number of these power five and group of five games that get scheduled every year are going to be put in jeopardy because instead of having your out of conference games be against, uh, you know, a, a, a Mac school like Kent state, your group of five school is going to be against like a TCU or they're not going to play at all. And the group of five teams or the, the, Power five teams that get left out are going to have to form their own little thing. And it just leaves us in this really weird spot where the whole middle ground, the whole middle class of college football is just going to get fucked. And it makes me sad. It objectively does. It's not going to make, I'm not going to be sad when I'm watching, you know, a top level school from the SEC play a top level school from the Big Ten or when. Clemson or Florida state or one of those schools inevitably joins the sec. And then we're able to see Georgia and Florida state. That's not going to make me sad watching the game. I'm going to love it, but it does take away some of that romantic and uniquely special qualities that college football carries. Because ultimately, and we've seen this in sports before the middle tier, when it gets watered out, people don't care as much. People care about the top end, and it might be better from a national product standpoint. They may make more money off of it, which, to be honest, yeah, the better matchups will help drive more TV revenue. But what's driving the higher and higher TV revenue is that live sports are the only thing that generate any sort of money. So cable companies are going to pay out the ass in order to retain the rights to it. That has more to do with this than, oh, it's going to be awesome matchups between an expanded SEC and expanded Big Ten. Yeah, so those matchups aren't going to hurt. But ultimately, 
that amazing special quality about the App State's upsetting Michigan, right? Or a team like Cincinnati last year going on a crazy run where the whole country seemed outside of, you know, Columbus was seemingly rooting for Cincinnati to get into the college football playoff. That's not going to exist. And we will have a, a minor league system for the NFL essentially in college football, and it will do phenomenal ratings and people will love it. And the quality of the games are going to be amazing, but you lose some of the essence. And I've said this before, because the second that the Washington States or the Oklahoma States or the TCUs or the Boston colleges, as soon as they get left out, we're going to feel bad about it for a week. Or we're going to feel bad about it until the first time we get to see the expanded SEC and the expanded Big Ten go out and play. But ultimately, it still really sucks for them. And we're now going to create an expanded middle class of college football that I think will ultimately hurt far more teams. I mean, we're, we're talking about 60 teams in group of five leagues and then projected. I mean, there's only 32 teams in the power five level, right. That are going to get to go to this top tier league. So we're talking about probably an additional 40 teams. That sucks. So all in all, could we see a 90 team middle class of college football? And on top of that, who's going to care when the top end has as much? Who's going to care nationally when the top end has as much? I mean, classic college football fans still will. But we're going to see those group of five schools in particular really get hurt by this. They're going to lose a lot of money. The programs are going to start. There's going to be group of five programs that shut down the middle Tennessee states, right? Like those schools are not going to be able to function financially in order to compete, definitely not recruiting. And now that we have uh, this whole, the whole transfer portal and everything, which is going to be a whole nother set of worms, right? Like if JMU gets some really good player and he wants to transfer up to South Carolina, we just saw this year with Antoine Wells, is he going to be able to jump up to the top tier? Is he going to be able to jump up to the SEC if it's not run under the umbrella of the NCAA anymore? I, I genuinely don't know. I don't, we don't have anything close to those answers yet. But I will say, I love that level of college football. And I'm excited while I'm going to be able to have it here for the next couple of years, and I'm going to try to soak in as much of it as I can. But we could see upwards of 80 to 90 schools getting kind of hosed by this. And that's not even touching the FCS stuff, which has already fought tooth and nail to get their own TV time. But now they're getting demoted from being the third tier of college football to being the fourth tier of college football. And so while I am a fan of the idea of sitting and watching these awesome matchups, it makes me sad that this middle class of college football that has created so many unbelievable memories over the years are probably not really going to exist. At least not to the same level that they have. And while I, I was just listening to the Andy Staples show the other day, and Staples is a good friend of mine, someone I've worked with for a long time, and he was talking about the what they called the Hopometer, which The Athletic did back in 2021, uh, where they they pulled, you know, all the Premier League teams fans 
and asked them a series of questions. And and essentially it was to gauge how much hope they had that their team could win a Premier League title. Could be the next Leicester City, right? And then they took that idea and they applied it to college football. And you know what was amazing? There were schools like Kentucky who had and, and Iowa State who had 100% of the voters that said that they were hopeful, that they had hope that one day they could make a national championship. And even though the Ted Lasso line, it's the hope that kills you, I get it, but that's what makes college football so freaking entertaining. That's why people argue about it online on Twitter, which I personally find very entertaining. I don't always do it, but I like reading it. I love debating the rankings. I love it. And you guys will hear us do it this year. We did it last year, and we're going to do it again this year. Because debating the rankings is so much fun. But is it going to matter in the future? Is it going to matter when we're ranking the top 25, but 32 teams are in a separate level of Division I football? Are there going to be dumb arguments about whether Louisiana Lafayette should be, or Louisiana Monroe, or or Coastal Carolina, or any of these teams should be in the top 15 because they play a group of five schedule. I love those debates. It's so much fun. But we're going to lose that at some point. Because I'll tell you right now, if there's a selection show or a college football top 25 reveal for the top 32 teams, no one's watching the top 25 for the group of five and whatever's left over from the power five. And damn sure no one's watching it for the FCS. And so while this is partially selfish of me because I just had my team finally get bumped up to the next tier and now it looks like they're going to end up staying the same distance away from a national championship that they were. I still think it's valid. And I still think that there's going to be a lot of people who are really bummed out over the next few years. A lot of people from small towns and are fans of smaller teams that aren't Alabama that aren't Auburn, that aren't SEC or Big Ten, where it affects it a little bit. Because FCS football was awesome, and I loved covering it, and I loved being around it, and I, I loved going to games. But you go to one game in Happy Valley. You go to one game in Death Valley, and you see the difference. Hell, I went to a Maryland-Penn State game, and I saw the difference. And I want that for my school, but I also want it for all. I want the hope that one day you could be a big time school for all of college football. Because that's what makes it so special. And so as we get close and by close, I mean this weekend to week zero, I really, really hope that we're able to appreciate college football the way it's set up while we still have it. All right, to wrap up the pod, I want to talk a little bit of golf as the PGA Tour season is wrapping up. Uh, we have the FedEx Cup Championship. It's interesting, right? A lot of people do not like this format. Um, it's essentially a three-hole, a three-tournament playoff. Uh, and then by if if you make it to the top 30, then you get to compete in the FedEx Cup Championship, which will be uh, I believe starting next weekend. However, I, I wanted to talk about it a little bit just because 
it's so unique and a lot of people find it gimmicky and weird. And this is the third year of it. And I, I just couldn't disagree more. I, whoever's the number one golfer in the world, right. Essentially gets a two stroke um, advantage. Now, depending on how many points you have, uh, you get more, more strokes. So like last year, uh, who I believe was Patrick Cantley had a five stroke lead. So if you are the number one player, if you've earned that, you get an advantage, which I think you should, right? Because in golf, you're the only one out there. So everyone's, especially with how good the tour is, if you're the only one going out, like you, anyone is able to win a tournament on the PGA tour, anybody. So you deserve a head start, right? It's if, it's like being the best team. If you're the, one of the best teams, you're going to be in the Super Bowl. You're going to make it to the NBA Finals. Like you have an advantage because you are the best team. Um, but in golf, especially because it can be so streaky, especially with the Scotty Scheffler and Cam Smith and some of these guys, um, it's it's just a little bit different. Now, Cam Smith will not be. Uh, sorry, Cam Smith is going to be playing. He's, I believe, second on the list. Um, and then the only one who did originally get pulled out was Will Zalatoris. Um, it's going to be epic. It's the 30 best golfers in the world. Um, the only player who's on the live tour who might've cracked this list is probably DJ uh, Kepka, depending on what, how healthy he was. I mean, we don't, we don't know what the rest of his season would have looked like, but it's the 30 best golfers in the world. And getting that advantage to me, I, I think is such a fun idea. And typically, these guys end up going pretty low. Um, but I will say, it's definitely handicapped towards whoever is number one. Um, in the three years that they've done this, um, the three years that they've done this, um, the winner of the tournament has started off with at least five under par. So my my apologies was that Scotty Scheffler is two under. He's actually two under ahead of the next person. So Scotty Scheffler is going to start at 10 under Patrick Cantley's in second at eight under Xander Shoffley at six under Cam Smith at four under Sam Burns five Rory's going to be at uh, four under Justin Thomas at three under John Rahm at three under Finau's at four under. Um, but look, the, the list is just absolutely loaded. And what's crazy is even someone like Max Homa, who is 14th on the list, starting at two under, yeah, he's eight strokes back of Scotty, but if Scotty has a bad showing, you never know, right? I mean, we've seen guys go out and shoot crazy low numbers on this tour. Um, Jordan Spieth's going to be in contention here. And just every single name on this list is unbelievable. Now, once you get to 23, Adam Scott, uh, he is even par heading into it. And then from there on, you're going to see a lot more players uh, right at that even number. But what is the best part about this whole thing, and this is why FedEx, the company, deserves a huge amount of respect, um, there's a lot of money. You come in first place, you win the FedEx Cup championship, it is $18 million. Second place gets 6.5, third place gets 5 million. Uh, sorry, second place gets 6.5, third place gets 5 million, 4 million to the fourth, 3 million to the fifth, and if you finish dead last at 30, you still get $500,000. So it's a great incentive for the PGA Tour. And it's only in its third season. 
or I guess technically fourth season because 2020 was a shortened one, but they still did it anyway. So 2019, 2020, 2021, this would be the fourth time that they've done it this way. And this is a lot, this is like the first step into what a lot of the guys who left to go play live had frustrations with, you know, regarding the PGA tour was more things like this. Now this is obviously a season long tournament, Right. So this is like the championship for the whole golf season going all the way back to February up until now. But it's such a massive purse and they are able to do things like this. The PGA has the ability to do things like this, to put more money in the pockets of PGA golfers to prevent this stuff from happening with live. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about last week, but did happen. Tiger Woods led a like basically a players only meeting with, uh, multiple people uh, from the PGA tour. And when I say multiple, I mean like I think almost 30 golfers were there to figure out how they were going to handle everything. Um, the Cam Smith penalty stroke uh, that were added after Wills Altors won his first uh, event last week was fascinating because it, it, it didn't seem coincidental. However, you know, Cam Smith did accept the penalty. It seems as though once this tournament wraps up, that Cam Smith will be leaving the PGA tour to join live uh, Hideki Matsuyama is also being rumored to potentially go over to live. And that's two really big losses. So hopefully whatever tiger said to them, will you know, get in their heads and will force them to actually do something about this. But I'm excited for the FedEx cup and I hope for golf fans. And I know, look, we got college football coming up. We have the NFL starting up soon. It's poorly timed, but at the same time, I'm going to be having this on one of my TVs. Like I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch the ending of the PGA, the FedEx cup championship. And I really hope where this will come through is on the Netflix documentary next year. When that comes out in January, hopefully that's going to be really interesting because we will see just how much like finishing third makes $5 million. That's bigger than any individual purse on tour. And we have 30 of the best golfers in the world. Like Sepp Straka is like 25th on this list, but or he's 15th. But that's only because he finished and damn near almost won the playoff, finished second at uh, the the event against Wills Torres in the playoff. Whereas he finished tied for 28th at the BMW this past weekend. So Sepp Straka has one really great showing and all of a sudden, boom, now he's in 15th. He starts four under par. He's six strokes back going into a four day golf event. That is not that crazy, especially considering that Scotty Scheffler is 10 up and has not, I mean, he's been playing good golf, but he hasn't been playing his best golf. This is a prime opportunity for guys to make money. And we can sit here all we want and talk about the live tour gives so much more money, blah, 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 all this stuff. This is an opportunity, and it's a huge incentive. I I get that you make $4 million for every win that you get on tour, even though it's getting taken out of your whatever your initial contract is with the Live Tour. But you're still getting $4 million. I think this is going to be high stakes, high energy, and I'm really excited for it. And I know other people aren't, and I've watched so much golf this year. I love golf. Anyone listens to this pod knows I love golf. But – I think this is going to be phenomenal. Anybody in the top 15, realistically, 16 even, could win this. Um, and it would take Cantley and 
Scotty Scheffler and uh, Xander and Rory and all these guys to kind of slow up here down the stretch. But it's definitely possible. Uh, and I think that alone makes this must-watch TV for any golf fan. So we'll see. All right, that's all I got. Have a wonderful week. Apologies once again about not having a second pod last week. We will have this one as well as one more breaking down the Pac-12 and the ACC on Friday to gear up for week zero this weekend. And then, as I said before, we will have our fantasy football draft, our fantasy football podcast next week. And we will close out next week and our football preview with the Big 12 coming a week and a half from right now. So busy couple weeks on the read option. Enjoy it. Stay safe. Have a wonderful week. And we will talk to you guys on Friday. Take it easy, everybody.